Welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I have with me today Jill Brooking, who is filling in for Chase Cannon while he is traveling around with his family. Jill is one of the original members of our Benefits Compliance team at NFP, so we're very excited that she's with us today. Um, as always, our goal is to provide the latest on health reform and, and throw in some history to shed light on topics being discussed. And today is really, um, in the realm of health reform, a watershed moment. And depending on which side of the aisle you stand, either it's a time for rejoicing or a, a time of defeat. So we will spend our time today recapping what happened uh, with the latest repeal and replace efforts and talk about some actions that Congress may attempt. And then what does this mean for employers going forward? Yes, I'm very happy to be here. Um, and what a week uh, that I get to be here. So uh, last week, uh, the Senate was, we knew they were going to discuss health care reform that was on the agenda, but really no one could have predicted everything that happened. In the beginning of the week, Senator John McCain's presence was a big question mark. Um, we didn't know if he would return to the Hill. He had been absent, and then he had made an announcement of a very serious health condition that he is dealing with um, that he's going to need treatment for. But there he was uh, to open the discussion on Tuesday, and it was quite dramatic. He came in um, with his passionate speech, and then days later, after lots of hours of debate and the early hours of Friday morning, the discussions pretty much ended with him casting the deciding vote against the GOP repeal bill. And that appears to maybe end the health care reform efforts, at least for now. Yes, that remains to be seen, although we, we still hear uh, some rumblings in the background. But what drama it was. And it was almost like a you couldn't write, um, uh, you know, a movie with the better facts. It was really kind of fascinating to watch. Um, there were numerous attempts at re repeal that were put before the Senate for a vote, and it started with uh, the GOP's Better Care Reconciliation Act. That was the Senate version of their repeal and replace efforts. It went on to various amendments, including um, amendments posed by the Democrats. Um, and there was a 2015 repeal bill that had been passed uh, back in 2015, but had been vetoed by President Obama. Um, and, and that did not pass either. And it was all wrapped up with the skinniest version of a bill that they could come up with, which was to repeal the individual mandate, repeal the employer mandate uh, for eight years and a few other things. And that was called the Healthcare Freedom Act. So aside from, from the individual and employer mandate penalties, which were really kind of the main thing they were, they were wanting to get rid of. Um, it also allowed uh, HSA contribution limits to be increased. There was a moratorium on medical device tax. And then there were some changes to that waiver program, which is interesting because of a question of whether it fit within the reconciliation bill, which, Jill, I'm going to get you to hit on, if you don't mind. Oh, yes. Um, and then finally, there was some funding for community centers. So ultimately, what really brought the bill down was the repeal of the individual mandate. Yeah, there were so many provisions that were discussed. But yeah, with the waiver amendment, when it was under the Better Care Reconciliation Act, that first Senate uh, repeal and replace bill, it was rejected by the Senate parliamentarian, that provision was, as not fitting within the reconciliation process. 
So as a reminder, a bit of background, uh, to be included in the reconciliation process, the provision must be related to the budget. That's why we talk about a lot of taxes when we talk about the reconciliation. That's why it was the individual mandate and employer mandate penalties. And, so, the, and the main thing about the reconciliation process is they only need 51 votes yes. versus the 60 votes. And yes, so that's we why this, we're in this process to begin the with. The simple majority um, is typically easier to get than the super majority <laughs> would have of the 60 votes. Um, so the parliamentarian made that determination on that provision in part because um, the amendment prov uh, removed the requirement that any waiver provide the same amount of coverage as under the ACA. So not really related to the budget. And then the skinny bills waiver amendment was focused on providing funding. So that's money providing funding to the states to implement those waivers and then shortening the approval time and then lengthening the life of the waiver all of which likely would have passed the parliamentarian. Um, and then I heard that some of the senators said they would have voted in favor of the bill as long it would be changed later by the House. Can you explain that? Right. Crazy, isn't it, that you um, that part of the process is to vote on something that you don't really want to pass. And you want um, someone to change later. And you want something. <laughs> yes, exactly. You want someone to change later. But it's you know, the procedure part, I don't know if, if others are as interested in it as we are, um, being compliance geeks, and I just think this is a fascinating process to watch it. It's like a chess game that each move you make has an impact on something else. Um, but Senator Majority Leader McConnell's strategy was to move the skinny repeal bill out of the Senate and over to the House, using it as a vehicle to get it to a conference committee um, with the House, because four of the senators, including Senator McCain, had said that they would not vote on it. Uh, they would not vote to pass it unless they had assurances that it could go to conference committee and that it would not just be voted through um, by the House on and put on uh, President Trump's uh, desk for signature. And there had been some word from others, others in the House that they were just going to try to pass it on through so mm -hmm. that they could get a win in that column. And so even though uh, Ryan had said that the lower chamber would take the bill to, to conference, I think it wasn't enough to give Senator McCain enough confidence that that approach was indeed going to occur. Yeah, a bit of an unknown. So talk to us more about this process of sending a bill to the House in hopes of a conference. Well, so when a chamber approves a bill, as the House did originally with their repeal and replace bill, they then sent it to the other chamber. In this case, it was the Senate for consideration. So if the, if the Senate would have taken up their bill as it was written and passed it through, it would have gone on to uh, President Trump for signature. Um, however, they chose to completely redraft it. And when you make changes to the original bill, it must then go back and the two chambers need to meet in conference committee to work out um, a compromise. And so they come out with a bill that hopefully both chambers can pass. Um, in fact, Paul Ryan had said that if they came out with a bill from conference committee, that he, his only uh, demand, I guess, of, of sorts, was to say that it had to go to the Senate first uh, to be voted on. Mm. When the two chambers do finally unite and pass a bill with the same text, then it is presented to a president to the president, whoever the president is at the time to be signed, and then it becomes law after that. So looking at what happened last night, in order to keep the repeal attempts alive, the Senate wanted to at least get it to conference committee to continue the work on an overall solution. 
And then the hopes were that somehow they would be able to draft up something that both sides could agree on. It's, you know, it is interesting, though. Yeah, because they thought, or at least it seems like some of them thought that more could be done through this conference committee process than they were able to do in the Senate by themselves. It seems as though maybe they were just delaying the inevitable if they have not been able to reach an agreement with themselves thus far. Right, I agree. I I mean, I think they just always hold out hope that they can find the solution that can garner enough votes. And so they continue to try to um, attempt, uh, you know, to still find that magic bullet. And as, as I mentioned earlier, I think there are still some um, efforts going on in the background. So what now? Are we likely to see any bipartisan solutions? That is, uh, you, you know, if, if I had that, that answer, then I would also uh, make quite a bit more money <laughs> yeah. um, in forecasting. But I do think that their focus has already changed to tax reform. It's important for the Republicans to get a win in, you know, a, a check mark in the win column of some sort. And so they are largely going to turn their focus in that direction. What What's going to be interesting is you have the same factions, though, in the Republican Party that were divided on health care reform. So whether they'll be able to come together on tax reform, again, remains to be seen. And could any health care related provisions be folded into that tax reform? It's possible. One of the things that we will be watching for is to make sure that they are not folding in a provision that is harmful to employers, which would be the capping of the employee tax exclusion. Right. Um, As a benefit, we hope that they would include this HSA increase in the contribution limits. Um, So there may be some little pieces in there, hopefully not the uh, elimination of the tax exclusion, but there could be some other areas that would be beneficial. And we will certainly be watching for that and reporting on that. One of the things I think that is most important for us to watch right now is how President Trump handles these cost-sharing subsidies. So Jill, walk us through what that issue is. Yes, I actually love this issue. I don't love the issue itself, but I like talking about the issue because it really is such an important one. And I think it's one that maybe a lot of people don't understand. It's gone under the radar a little bit. And so as a bit of background, um, the cost-sharing subsidies are related to an insured's out-of-pocket expenses under an individual insurance policy. That's why maybe some in the employer market haven't really heard a lot about this or don't really understand the issue. But lower-income earners who qualify for reduced premiums when they go to the exchange and buy an individual policy, they also could qualify for reduced cost-sharing. So if you think about an individual who purchases a $5,000 deductible policy, they could have that deductible reduced to $3,000, for example, because of this cost-sharing subsidy. The subsidy is funded by the government and it's paid to insurers. So think about it in a way that um, once they get that payment, the insurers can then start to pay benefits on the policy earlier. There's been an ongoing legal battle about these subsidies with the battle going back to the Obama administration. And at that time, the Republicans argued that payment to insurers was unconstitutional. But the problem is that if the government stops paying these subsidies, the insureds are still entitled to receive them. So that means or receive cost, reduced cost sharing, I should say. That means that the insurers would be responsible for funding this program. They'd be responsible for funding the subsidies. Um, the Trump administration so far has been continuing those monthly payments. 
but they could decide to stop those payments. And a couple of times, President Trump has maybe alluded to that idea that he would. He certainly has. Even even very recently, he's alluded to it as kind of a strong arm effort to get them to continue to try to work on the health reform issues. And, and what makes it uh, such an interesting twist is that the Republicans brought the lawsuit. Um, the district court actually found in favor of their argument. So it was the administration, the Obama administration, that was going to appeal the outcome. And now that the administration has changed hands, it's Trump who gets to decide whether he will ap- appeal the court's decision. So that's, uh, you know, that adds such an interesting twist. But the problem with Trump's um, comments is that we have such an, an unstable market as it is. And uh, because of this uncertainty on whether the carriers will continue to get that federal funding, because without it, they're, they are liable for the expenses and have priced their product according to expecting this additional funding to come in. So you will have, we are running up against a clock in August of the carriers having to submit their rates for 2018 and also having to commit whether they will be engaged or involved or uh, offer products on the exchanges. And if they do not have assurances that they will have funding for these products, um, they have said that they will increase their premium cost 20% to cover that new risk. So it's, uh, it certainly has an impact um, on the individual market. You may be saying in the employer market, why should I care about this? It's not going to affect me and those cost-sharing subsidies are not available in the employer market. Um, but in my view, as, as I've mentioned on prior podcasts, podcasts, I think we have to be concerned about the instability of the markets in general, because certainly instability in the individual market can bleed over into the employer market. And it's really what we saw prior to the ACA, um, when you had a large uninsured population, they went into the ERs, they were cared for by providers, and those providers did cost shifting. So if they had individuals who, who, uh, whose care was not compensated, they increased uh, the cost for uh, their services to the private payers. And so what we saw is, is increased cost for the private insurance market. That's just one way that having a large uninsured population or, or a, not a healthy individual market could impact employers as well. Yeah, that really is such an important issue. It could change a lot. Um, So what types of bipartisan changes could we see otherwise? Well, I think the Democrats would like to see at least some, I shouldn't speak for them, but at least (laughs) some would like to see the reinsurance risk adjustment, risk corridors, those three R's, or at least a portion thereof uh, reintroduced so that that could bolster the individual market. on the opposite side, Republicans see that as bailing out insurance companies and uh, are not in support of it. So if you, this is certainly a complicated issue and more than we can get into today. And in fact, we'll probably do a podcast on it to delve into it further. But generally the idea is um, in order to have carriers interested in offering products um, in the individual market, even though they're not allowed to rate their products based on someone's health condition, so prior to the ACA, if you were an individual, you went and bought an insurance policy, they would look at your health status and then price the product accordingly. They are no longer able to do that under the ACA. They cannot take pre-existing conditions into account when pricing their products. So that obviously increases the risk for carriers in, uh, in how they price their products. And so the risk for a carrier is they would offer a product in the individual market and they may just get a lot of bad luck and having a lot of really sick people coming to them 
for coverage and they didn't price it accordingly. So in order to keep those prices down so the carriers aren't increasing them significantly due to that additional risk, they would have reinsurance on the back end to alleviate some of those high cost claims. So that's a simplified version of how the federal government could provide additional funding to help stabilize some of the premium prices on the front end for those carriers being willing to offer products in the individual market. And that's really one of the core issues that affects so many of the provisions that we talk about, making sure that the premiums are affordable for all, which means that that risk pool, the big risk pool, when we talk about all of the risk, it needs to include um, those that are healthy as well as those with the serious health conditions so that it all balances out. Well, that's that's true. So, Jill, let's switch gears back to employers now. Yes. So now we've we've gone through. They've you feel we feel like we're at the end of at least for this time period um, the repeal and replace efforts by the GOP. So we're back to square one. So walk us through, Jill, again. What does this mean for employers? Yeah. So it's the end of a chapter, not the end of of the book. But so for now, it really is just business as usual for employers. The insurers are continuing to offer coverage in the group markets. So and when you see those big headlines that a carrier is pulling out of a market, that is typically in the individual market. So it will be the same coverage typically in the group market. Those plan designs will continue to include the health care reform provisions that we've gotten accustomed to over the last few years, uh, like the statutory out-of-pocket maximums, which are indexed every year the preventive care services with no cost sharing, uh, the coverage for children up to age 26, and of course, no pre-existing condition exclusions. Then on the small employer side, those plans will still have essential health benefits and they still could have member level billing based on age. That's still how they are rated, but some carriers, when they deliver those rates or the premiums to the employer, they can use um, composite rates. Depending on region and carrier, you could see composite rates delivered to you. And then large employers um, continue efforts with tracking of hours of employees and then offering that minimum value, affordable coverage, doing those calculations to those working 30 hours or more per week and then maintaining those records uh, so that you can report those offers on Form 1095-C in early 2018. So it feels a bit like Groundhog's Day? <laughs> yes, but same we, thing. Same, uh, same picture, um, but we will certainly be watching for any changes that can occur either through uh, any ongoing efforts with repeal and replace or certainly through any of the changes in tax reform. So with that, we will wrap it up today. But Jill, we're so grateful that you joined us and hope that you'll join us on future podcasts. I hope so. This was fun. Thank you. And with that, we says we like to say the benefits compliance world, it's a wrap. I've been looking forward to this. It's a wrap. <laughs> Thank you very much. 